Hi there, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of blogs on the From Poverty to Power blog. Um, started with links I liked, which is always um, uh, one of my favourites. Uh, things I've collected from social media over the previous couple of weeks. Um, we have a new Boaty McBoatface, Doncaster Council in the north of England, uh, asked the public to come up with names for their um, gritters, the, the things that put salt and grit on the roads when it gets icy. And the public responded in, with, great, uh, uh, with great imagination. And the two new gritters are now called Gritsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Anti-Slip Machinery and David Plowy. I think I prefer David Plowy, actually, but um, those were the two that won. 25,000 people voted. So there's obviously um, elections are what we do in Britain at the moment, and that is the result. Um, we also had a link to uh, a new piece of research by Give Directly. I've, been, I'm, I'm, I've got a sort of uh, keen interest in Give Directly. They've been going about 10 years. And um, one of the um, reasons they got started was a lecture I gave at Harvard about 10 or 11 years ago, where I mentioned a, a program I called Cash for Coffins in Vietnam, where the Oxfam people in Vietnam decided to just give money to uh, in a substantial amount, $500, I think it was, to 500 families or something like that, um, uh, and see what they did with it. And then they, and they did some quite careful evaluation and, and found that actually people use the money very well. Some of the old people used money for coffins because that was a big expense coming up and they wanted to go, uh, to go in, de in decent style. And that's why I called it Cash for Coffins. Well, some students at Harvard heard that and thought, oh, we could, uh, we could develop that. And in true Harvard style, they then did a startup called Give Directly, which has now become a multi-million dollar um, charity which specializes in getting 95 cents of every dollar that is donated onto the SIM card or into the hands of people living in poverty in East Africa. And they've also, because presumably because they imbibed the importance of evaluation when they were at university, have been very big on the research side of uh, measuring impact. This latest piece of research is massive. So they did a big cash transfer scheme in one county near Lake Victoria in Kenya. They transferred $10 million in cash, uh, $1,000 per family in three chunks over eight months. And then they surveyed very carefully, not just the recipients, but neighbors, local businesses, and try and really get a sense of the impact of a big injection of cash. The cash involved represented 15% of GDP of, uh, in, in, in the area where they were putting money in, which is three times bigger than the stimulus in the US after the financial crisis. So we're talking major, major, you know, in, in, major involvement here, major impact. And the, the results were spectacular. So they found out that the recipients benefited, neighbours benefited, nearby villages benefited, higher wages, more activity in the economy. Uh, they found very little of the downsides people have talked about with cash transfers. No obvious sign of inflation, no sign of jealousy from those who didn't receive uh, or resentment. And a fiscal multiplier of 2.6. So for every dollar they put in, they generated $2.6 of activity in the economy. So a really interesting piece of work, uh, quite a large-scale piece of work, which suggests that this is not just about what NGOs like Give Directly do, but it could actually be, yeah, it's relevant research, relevant findings for big government uh, cash transfer schemes as well. The rest of links I liked was about the uh, the um, conference of the parties going on in Madrid, a bunch of uh, links to various aspects of, uh, on, of work on climate change, um, things like 
UNCTAD just releasing a new global Green New Deal proposal uh, off the back of the Green New Deal proposed in the US and UK. Um, so lots of stuff going on around Madrid at the moment. Second post of the week was how to support research in fragile and conflict-affected states. Um, and I drew a lot. This has come out of a couple of conversations I've had recently about this topic. Slip of tea, thank you very much. Um, and uh, I drew a lot on some of the great contributions from researchers in those fragile states through the Power Shifts program that Maria Fasilince is running. And uh, I raised a few of the, I basically raised a few of the questions they've been raising and put some headings on it. So what do we mean by knowledge? Knowledge in fragile states may be more oral, maybe less, um, uh, may not be recognised by people coming in with a very academic, northern academic filter. So do we have to rethink what we mean by knowledge? Um, what what do we mean when we say fragile states? I mean, that's an incredibly loose, sloppy term. A lot of people are very doubtful about whether it's a useful term. And I just created a little two by two uh, on this topic saying, well, let's look at how much existing capacity is there in the country for research. So are there well-established universities which you can work with? Um, and what's the risk to researchers of doing research? How dangerous is it? And then you get four quadrants and you might well want to do your support for fr research in those places differently depending on which quadrant you're in. Um, most fragile states are not all fragile. Most conflict-deflected states are not all ridden by conflict. So is it, does it make more sense to support researchers in the more tranquil bits where you can get work done, and then those researchers themselves go off to work in the conflict bits? Um, does it make sense to, to support individuals more than institutions? Because if you can improve the research skills of individuals, they're likely to use them in a bunch of different places. And that might be more effective than trying to set up institutions, which may well suffer with the, um, the volatility that's characteristic of these places. Uh, talking about public, uh, positive deviance. So in places which are really hard to understand, maybe you should just see where things are going well. The positive outliers on any given issue, nutrition, violence, um, whatever it is, identify those and then just go and try and find out why they are there. Why are those particular communities, those particular households done better on this particular topic rather than come in with um, you know, a, a random sort of questionnaire or whatever. Uh, I linked up to some of the work I'm doing at LSE on public authority, that in places like the Congo where I went recently, power and authority lies with a much wider group of actors than just the state. So you've got armed groups, you've got very influential faith organisations, you've got traditional leaders. So research in those places has to be literate in all these forms of public authority. Um, a lot of uh, the content on power shifts has been about the link between money and power. How does the fact that so much research money is dominated um, from outside these uh, fragile contexts distort the research that is carried out um, and what can we do about that and then finally an issue of safety that you know if you're a if you're a brit british researcher in the congo and things get dangerous yeah there are a whole system of, of mechanisms for getting you out and, and protecting you and ensuring you the same is not true of local researchers so how do we improve that and actually think more about the safety of research in these places uh Thursday was election day in Britain. I'm not going to talk about the elections, um, partly because I'm not supposed to, 
because uh, Oxfam is uh, subject to quite strong laws on what it can and can't say about uh, party politics in Britain, and partly because I'm just too bloody depressed. So I'm not going to talk about it. Um, if you follow me on Twitter, I will have uh, I've sent various links of things I found interesting. Um, but otherwise, let's move on. Um, but what I did on election day was put up a list of uh, yeah, links to previous pieces on elections and democracy. And looking back at it, it was quite a dark um, selection of basically what's going wrong with democracy worldwide, the link with authoritarianism, things like a book review of Nick Cheeseman and Brian Klass's book, How to Rig an Election, excellent book. Um, <clears throat> and then a large quote from The Economist, which I'm going to have to bring up on the uh, uh, um, computer so I can read it to you because it's so good. Hold on a second. Talk amongst yourselves while I do this. Sorry, I meant to print this out, but I forgot. Never mind. Blame it on the amount I had to drink last night. Um, here we go. Right. Uh, and... Okay. This is from a, a 2018 piece on democracy, one of those uh, um, economist essays which I think are beautifully written. Um, here we try this, see if this sounds familiar. A democracy typically declines like this. First, a crisis occurs and voters back a charismatic leader who promises to save them. Second, this leader finds enemies. His aim, in the words of H.L. Mencken, a 20th century American wit, is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by an endless series of hobgoblins, all of them imaginary. Third, he nobbles independent institutions that might get in his way. Finally, he changes the rules to make it harder for voters to dislodge him. During the first three stages, his country is still a democracy, but at some point in the final stage, it ceases to be one. So people are feeling pretty gloomy about democracy right now, and I thought that was a fine piece of writing from The Economist. And then just to complete the general joy, um, I had a podcast. The last piece of the week was a podcast. The organisation Civicus, which is an international network of civil society organisations, uh, does a number of good things. One of them is the Civicus Monitor, which monitors what's going on with civil society organisations around the world, and in particular, the threats to them and the crackdowns on their ability to operate. And they launched last week, they launched their, their latest report, People Power Under Attack 2019. And I've discovered that what uh, what is a lot of fun is to go to these launches, hear the content, and then grab a couple of the speakers and do a, do a podcast. So I sat down with Don Pereira, who's the kind of brains behind the Civicus Monitor, works for Civicus, and Tonu Basu, who is a sort of policy wonk at, at the Open Government Partnership. And I did a podcast with them. Um, and that meant I got them very briefly to summarise the report, but then we dug into the, what goes on behind the report. So why now? What's the link between the crackdown that they're describing here and the protest movements we're seeing around the world? Are they? Uh, do, do, does the crackdown lead to the protests? Do the protests lead to the crackdown? Or are they actually totally parallel processes which have nothing to do each, with each other? Uh, there's lots on the in the podcast, and I did a transcript of the of the most uh, some of the the highlights. But but one thing I was interested in is the new tactics. I asked them what what are governments doing that's new in this crackdown, and they identified a few. One is Gongos, government NGOs. So governments set up NGOs which are a kind of NGOs but are not, and they use those to kind of occupy the space to mess up 
to go to international fora and do pro-government messaging and generally to confuse things. They use media to attack civil society organisations and civil society leaders, vilify them, you know, try and destroy their reputation. And then even, and the worst of all is they're outsourcing violence. You know, for a government to actually repress um, civil society violently carries a certain political cost. If it can get its supporters to do it for them, uh, the political cost is reduced. So you're seeing supporters of governments attacking uh, civil society organisations attacking protesters, and then the government can say, uh, "Clean hands, dirty gloves" was the uh, the phrase that Dom Pereira used, which I thought was quite a good soundbite. Um, so, sorry, a bit of a dark week in terms of uh, the content, but um, have a good weekend anyway, and I'll see you next week.